Good afternoon, everybody. It's a time for another reading of The Lady in Gold, the extraordinary tale of Gustav Klimt's masterpiece, Portrait of Adele Blochbar, written by Anne-Marie O'Connor, the author. And I'm going to try to get two, pay, uh, two pieces of this today. The first one is called The Gutmans. Gutmans, Gutmans, I call it Gutman. It was never clear why Luis and Victor ignored the clouds on the horizon in early 1941. A British intelligence officer warned the family of the impending German invasion. But Victor was adamant he would not consider abandoning everything the Gutmans had built in Yugoslavia. It was a beautiful spring. Generous rain had yielded a glorious carpet of wildflowers in full bloom across the meadows. Louise and Victor's daughter, Nellie, took walks through the gypsy village at the edge of Beliche and rode her black beauty, a filly named Baba, through the sunflower fields. Trained by a hussar who had fled the Russian Revolution, Nellie was an expert rider. Nellie's father was often deeply preoccupied that spring, and there was much he didn't tell her. Authorities had confiscated the property of 12,000 Jews in Zagreb and ordered their possessions handed out to non-Jewish croats. Jewish students were banned from universities. Jewish government employees were fired, and Jewish lawyers and physicians were forbidden to practice. Synagogues were closed. Nellie, 12, had no idea of this. Victor and Luis tried to shield their children from these realities. The family had converted to Roman Catholicism and thought this might protect them. They were already very secular and celebrated Christmas and Easter. Now, Nellie couldn't go to school. Jews couldn't go to movies either, lest they contaminate the environment with their presence. Life became more incomprehensible. It was difficult for Nellie to imagine that her distant, glamorous parents were anything but infallible. Outwardly, Nellie's life was very privileged. Her father was a wealthy baron from a celebrated family that had married into nobility for hundreds of years. Her mother was a great beauty from a clan that traced its lineage to 15th century Portugal. Her pediatrician, was Dr. Gertrude Bien, one of Vienna's finest doctors. But her parents often seemed preoccupied with their own lives, and Nellie grew into a reserved, serious child. Luisa's nickname for Nellie, Trottle, meaning idiot, was ostensibly affectionate, but seemed indicative of the gap between magnetic Louise and her small, shy daughter. Nellie spent part of every year in the, back, in the backwater of Belish, far from the balls and opera her mother thrived on. Belish was a few miles south of the Hungarian border, not far from the Danube, port of Vukovar. Just down the road was Ostrich, with its ancient fort in secessionist and art deco architecture. The breakup of the empire had long ago dulled its luster. 
further south was the picturesque mountain city of Sarajevo with its minarets, onion domes, and veiled Muslim women. The leash owed its existence to Victor's grandfather, Aladar, who had founded a timber company and built a railroad line through the forest between Hungary and Yugoslavia. This earned him a title, a visit from Emperor Franz Joseph and an imperial gold watch. Here, Serbs and Croats intermarried. Gypsies lived peacefully on the outskirts of the village. When dusk fell, they lifted their violins and cymbalos and played the hauntingly seductive music that is Cezerin or Cherin. Cherzin? Sorry. I I looked this word up too. Cherzin? (laughs) C-Z-E-R-N-I-N. Cherzin. Cernin. (laughs) I'm sorry. This was yesterday I looked. Anyway, uh, let's go back. When when dusk fell, they lifted their violins and cymbalos and played the hauntingly seductive music that a Cherzin count had likened to making love standing up. Nellie volunteered to deliver the charity food and clothes to elderly gypsy widows so she could listen to their sad, strange songs. Her mother hired the gypsies to play at parties. The three branches of of the extended Gutman family lived together in a great house, each branch with its own apartment, with common rooms for eating and entertaining. Victor's brother, Erno, had an affectionate uncle to the children and a doting father to his daughter, Eleanor, amused everyone by doing their astrological charts. Here, one day had passed into the next, like the pages of Nellie's school books. Until now. Victor and Louise were under strong family pressure to leave Yugoslavia. To Victor, this was unthinkable. Erno was less certain. One night at dinner, he unveiled his latest astrological chart, that of that of Adolf Hitler. It predicted a terrible future. The family shrugged this off. They had rolled their eyes and smiled at Erno's astrology for years. His Hitler chart seemed a reflection of his own fears. Still, Erno thought his wife should take their daughter to Switzerland. Little Eleanor wept forlornly at the idea of being separated from her father. If Belish was not safe enough for them, why was it safe for her father? As their suitcases were loaded into the train, Erno helped his distraught little girl up the ramp, waving as Eleanor pressed her tear-stained face against the window. To Victor and Erno, defending their family's business empire seemed more urgent after the sacking of family properties in Vienna, but the dangers of staying were evident. The Swiss government, citing the threat of war, had already recalled its citizens, including Nellie's Swiss governess. Nellie couldn't have been more delighted. The governess had been cruel, pulling Nellie's long braids to punish her. When the Germans marched into Yugoslavia, the Gutmans were still there. For a while, life for Nellie went on as usual. 
Her father was so calm in the early days that when a dele delegation of offic officials from the Nazi puppet government came by, they were asked to wait while Victor finished playing a piece on the piano. Then, in May, Anustasha, government official, drove up to the administration offices of the timber factory. He was furious that most of its shareholders had already fled and registered their shares in banks abroad. He wanted to take control of the factory. A few days later, Victor drove off with some officials and didn't return. The men sent Luis a flippant message that they were thinking of shooting Victor to settle the matter of the shares quickly. That was in quotes. To settle the matter of the shares quickly. But it was a bluff. Victor was worth more to them alive than dead. He promised to try to obtain signatures for the shares. They released him. For now. In October, the authorities grew impatient. They summoned Victor and Erno and ordered them to speed up the delivery of the shares. Erno dressed for the meeting in one of his best suits, politely objected. He said he spoke for the entire family when, he, when asked why they should hand over the country's biggest timber concern after the family had spent generations building it and were running it so well. Why indeed? Authorities said they'd like to talk things over with Erno in Zagreb and would come and pick him up. Erno asked the housekeeper to pack his dress shirts and enough insulin to treat his diabetes for several days. But as they neared Zagreb, the men turned down an unfamiliar road. They drove into a barbed wire enclosure where there, where there were crowds of forlorn people with terror on their faces. Erno stared in disbelief. He was at a secret concentration camp called Jasenovac, Jasenovac, a ghastly place where Serbs and Jews were killed by hand to spare the cost of gas or bullets. A few hours later, Erno was standing in line, and a guard casually slit his throat. "'Where's my father?' Nellie's cousin Eleanor wrote from Geneva, after her father's letters abruptly stopped. The Gutmans had no idea. All they knew was that, that, was that Erno had never come home. Pretty gruesome. The Blonde Beast. The Blonde Beast is in quotes. The Blonde Beast part. It was an, a warm fall day in Prague in October 1941, and the lyrical Charles Bridge was bathed in the golden light of autumn when a motorcade pulled up to inspect the Bresny estate of Ferdinand Blockbauer just outside Prague. Reinhard Tristan, Eugene, Eugene Heydrich, the new Nazi imperial prosecutor, sorry, not prosecutor, protector <laughs> of Bohemia, and Moravia got got out of a sedan. Heydrich knew a little knew little about Ferdinand. He took in the crystal chandeliers, the long baronial dining room table, and the tapestries, and found the castle an excellent residence for the prestigious position he had long coveted. 
He liked the classic mounted antlers and the stuffed stag in the entryway. He was bringing his much-admired wife, Lena, to live here with his two sons and little daughter. Like many Nazis, his career had given him access to the spoils of stolen property, and he had used it to build his power base. This particular expropriated Jewish estate suited his personal vanities. Heydrich fancied himself a discriminating aesthete and defender of German culture, the kind of man who had always deserved an estate like this. He acquired these conceits during a childhood, during child, a childhood as the son of a minor German composer, Richard Bruno Heydrich, and a violinist mother. His, cha- his parents named him after a passage in Reinhard's Crime, an opera that his father had written. Richard Wagner's Tristan and Isolde inspired Heydrich's second name. His third name, Eugene, referred to Prince Eugene of Savoy, the war hero of Vienna's Belvedere Palace. Heydrich married Lena von Olsten in 1931 after verifying that she possessed the racial pedigree required of the wives of SS officers, though he himself hid probable Jewish ancestry on his father's side. Lena was the daughter of a school headmaster from a small island in the Baltic Sea. Lena and her brother had been early Nazi party members, and her family was impeccably anti-Semitic. Heydrich met Lena in Kiel, in Kiel or Kiel, where he was a naval officer, and Lena was studying to be a schoolteacher. Heydrich, a carousing philanderer, had gotten well connected a well-connected girl pregnant, but he proposed to Lena instead. He was expelled by the Navy for conduct unbecoming an officer. Lena's Nazi connections salvaged his career. In June 1931, Heydrich found himself interviewing with Heinrich Himmler, the national commander of Germany's SS, an increasingly powerful paramilitary organization of the Nazi party. Lena would discover she had married a dangerous man with a well-deserved reputation for treachery. The foul-mouthed Heydrich made many enemies, even among Nazis. His rivals believed he was plotting to kill them. Their fears were not unfounded. In 1934, Heydrich sent men to kidnap a Nazi rival. They badly botched the job, killing their target and panicking, abandoning their car and leaving under other glaring clues. Heydrich had created a group of mobile commandos to secure government offices and documents when the Germans arrived in Austria in 1938. The force evolved into the notorious Einsatzgruppen, or mobile killing teams, whose members had carte blanche to commit butchery. By the time they arrived at Fernandad's house, even Heydrich's wife feared him. People whispered about Lena's close relationship with a good-looking Heydrich protege, Walter Schellenberg. Lena had long resented her husband's dalliances with young women drawn to powerful Nazis, 
and his enjoyment of the notorious bacchanalias of drinking and sex with that were a male bonding ritual. Even Heydrich's fellow officers dreaded his calls to join late-night binges in Berlin nightclubs and brothels. Heydrich was a mean drunk. Some saw Lena as a long-suffering captive of her husband. Unlike her husband, Lena was disgusted by the stuffed stag Fernandand had placed in the front hall and consigned it to the rubbish heap. Heydrich was often out of town. In January 1942, he chaired a conference in the Berlin suburb of Wannsee on the final solution to Jewish question. The conferees decided on extermination. The Nazis wished to accomplish this quickly and efficiently using modern assembly line methods inspired by an early admirer of Hitler. Henry Ford. Lena busied herself redecorating. She insisted on a swimming pool for their two sons, Klaus and Heider, and their little daughter, Silke. Fernand's castle finally got a pool. By the spring of 1942, the renovations were finished. Fernand's topiaries were clipped, his flowers bloomed, and all the castle's musty old quote-unquote, Jewish family papers, letters, and photographs were burned. On May 27th, Heydrich opened the newspaper expectantly. He and Lena had gone to a classical classical music concert in Prague the evening before. The newspaper published a photo of him leaving the theater, fit and trim in his dress uniform. Lena, in a tailored dress and wide coat, seemed to have stepped out of a Hollywood film. Heydrich was pleased. Lena was was in the garden that morning, her hair in blonde plates wrapped around her pretty head in the new Germanic style. Her sons were dressed in Hitler Youth shirts and Silke in an an equestrian... Too many vowels. (laughs) In an equestrian habit. Lena was visibly pregnant. Their fourth child was due in July. Heydrich's driver brought his sleek black Mercedes convertible to the door of Fernandon's castle. The butcher of Prague finished his breakfast and wandered out to the garden for a leisurely goodbye. Brezeny was a place to was a beautiful place to live. It was a lovely drive into Prague in the open air, bathed in soft sun morning light, soft spring morning light. (laughs) Sorry, I messed up. I got light and sun and blah, blah, blah. Okay, it was a lovely drive into Prague in the open air, bathed in soft spring morning sun, to Heydrich's stately offices at the Baroque 17th century Cernan, Cernan Palace, the largest in Prague, the third largest in Prague. I gotta slow down. As the car rounded a bend, a man ran into the street, opening or opened his raincoat and raised a gun. He pulled the trigger, but the gun failed to fire. 
Heydrich was stunned. Outrageous! He shouted to this, his driver to stop and stood and shot at the buffoon. Heydrich missed. Another man stepped from the bushes and hurled a bomb, shattering the windows of a streetcar. Passengers screamed. Heydrich's driver leapt out and ran after the attackers. Heydrich, wounded by shrapnel, staggered after him, shouting, Get that bastard! The would-be assassins took refuge in Karl Brum... <laughs> the would-be assassins took refuge in Karl Boromedzki's church in the catacombs. <laughs> Heydrich died of infection from his wounds. Hitler was furious that man that a man as irreplaceable as Heydrich should expose himself to unnecessary danger. I can only condemn as stupid and idiotic, he said in June four on June fourth. Revenge was swift. On June ninth, a train with a thousand Jewish Czechs was sent from Prague to Poland. Two thousand people were ordered out of the out of the Thernstadt concentration camp and sent east to be killed. Wow. Ugh. Finally, under interrogation, someone told the Nazis to look for the assassins in the church. The SS men were greeted there with gunfire and two officers were wounded. Shouts came from the crypt. We will never surrender. The officers brought fire hoses to pump water into the catacombs and tossed in tear gas canisters. They decided to blow open the crypt. Gunshots crackled from the church bowels. The surviving would-be assassins had made sure they would not be taken alive. The Nazis wanted to make an example. They chose Lidisch a quaint cobblestone village well established by the 14th century. The fiercely independent villagers disdained occupation. The Nazis rounded up 192 men and boys over 16 in Liedisch and executed them. The women and children were sent to concentration camps where most of the children died. Liedisch was torched and razed. More than a more than 1,300 other people were executed for their purported involvement in the resistance. In Switzerland, Fernandad was appalled. The human cost was a terrible price to pay for the assassination of his mad house guest. Fernandad worried about his blind sister, Agnes, whom he had moved from Vienna during the Anschluss and who was now in Prague sanatorium. Fernandad contacted an old friend, Prince Schwarzenberg, who had fled, his, fled the Nazis and asked him to send someone to check on her. Fernandad soon got news during the crackdown following the assassination. Gestapo agents had hustled off the terrified 89-year-old Agnes Meyer in a roundup of Prague Jews. She was deported to Theresienstadt. I'm not probably pronouncing that right. Sorry, everybody. Poor gentle Agnes, who had asked 
little more than to live in peace and die in her sleep had survived less than three days. After his assassination, Heydrich was made a Nazi martyr, and the plan to exterminate Jews was named Operation Heydrich in his honor. Hitler bestowed Ferdinand's house on Lena and her children in perpetuity. In perpetuity, the deal soured somewhat, as Lena argued, with the SS over the employment terms of the concentration camp slave laborers ordered to remodel the estate, which was now envisioned as a hub of Aryan resettlement. Wow, this is a tough story to read, really, but it's, I'm still finding it fascinating to know that all of this was going on during that time with, with the artists, Gustav Klimt, and what happened with his work, and what, wow, I don't know. And then, you know, just as, just as an aside, I think back on, on what else was going on and who else was born during this time. And it just, it's just crazy to know about it all. So that's the end of today's reading. And next will be Love Letters from a Murderer and Fernanad's Legacy. And maybe also the uses of art. We'll get back into the art. So we're closing in on the end. Well, yeah, we're more than a, we're more than halfway. We're about probably two thirds of the way at least. Maybe. Anyway, let me look here. Yeah, about two thirds of the way. All right. Thanks for listening. I hope you're enjoying your Saturday afternoon, evening wherever you may be. Thanks again. Take good care.